0: Associate Professor and Chair of Energy and Climate Economics at ETH in Zurich. In this episode, we discuss Lynn's journey and research at the intersection of economics and climate, investigating how environmental processes and policies affect macroeconomic outcomes and human welfare. Before getting into her work at the University of Chicago and Yale and UCSB and more, We rewind and Lint discusses her early exposure to natural resources as her father specialized in plastics, and she grew up with a whole host of recycling technologies and clocks and watches, you name it, at home. Now, for those who aren't as familiar with environmental economics, we discuss some of its history, some resources to get started, and some work to follow along as the debate on the climate emergency continues. I'm inspired by Lint's humility, her grace, and her drive. It's clear that she has such a passion for her research, feels so incredibly lucky and grateful for the list of mentors that have supported her, and she's also giving back to her students today. Please enjoy this interview with the wonderful Lint Barrage. Hi, Lint. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining. And I want to say thank you to the leading economist, Professor Ali Savinsky at Yale for connecting us. Thank you, Ali. I try to always consume all the content and media and resources that my guests produce. Unfortunately, I didn't do that with you because you're quite prolific with your working papers and published pieces. So I apologize for not reading everything (laughs) that you published. I'm really looking forward to discussing a lot of your research in terms of environmental and climate risks and opportunities. But first, if you don't mind, I always like to start every interview with where people grew up because I'm always interested in people's childhoods and backgrounds. So if you don't mind rewinding your highlight wheel to the beginning of where you grew up.
1: No, not at all. I grew up in the countryside of Switzerland, beautiful place, close to the city of Zurich. in a countryside with more cows than people. I was raised by a German mother, a Lebanese father, and later an American stepdad as well.
0: You mentioned in a prior conversation that your dad worked in the recycling industry. Can you expand on that?
1: Yes, he did. He was an engineer by training, and he specialized in plastics. And during my childhood, he was doing a lot of work on recycling technologies. In our house, we had industrial sized recycling containers and recycled clocks and watches and everything. He was big in natural resources and recycling.
0: That's neat. And when you were little, do you remember thinking, oh, dad, he's crazy. He's just doing his job thing again. Or did it seep into how he raised you guys and thinking, okay, let's make this part of your mindshare of growing up in terms of thinking about the environment, thinking about recycling?
1: It wasn't as much that he made it a point to discuss it as much, but I remember going into his office in our house and looking at his books. He had some books on his shelf that were about resource scarcity and potential for environmental disasters in the future. I looked at those books when I was probably too young to do so. That made a huge impression on me. It it scared me to think that environmental problems could become such a big problem for the world, and that really left a lasting impression.
0: Did you know that you wanted to study that when you started thinking about which university you would attend?
1: More or less, yes. I've had a strong interest in the environment since childhood, basically.
0: One of the questions I always like to ask is how people chose the university they went to and why and how they picked the major, because it seems that now looking back, everyone is so successful and happy with their professional track, but no one knows when they're in their teenage years, 17 or 18 what they wanted to do, what they wanted to be when they grew up. How did you pick your university? And it seems like you already knew what major to focus on, but how did you choose the university that you selected?
1: I wasn't sure about the major. I initially knew I wanted to do something with the environment. For a while, I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker and make alarmist environmental documentaries. And then I thought maybe about law school, working at an NGO, but I was very lucky to go to the University of Chicago. And I ended up there really by chance. I had applied to a number of colleges. And one day I was just in the library and happened to read about this place called the University of Chicago. And I applied on a Friday afternoon on a whim. And then when I got in, I did some more research and found out that it's a really great school with strong academics. And that's what drew me to it. But it was very fortuitous that I did. And I'm grateful I had the chance to go there because it was a great place to go. Initially, I declared myself an environmental studies major, which I then got a very agitated phone call from my father saying, what are you going to do with this degree? What kind of jobs are you going to get? That's not a career. That I think culturally came from a place where there's a hierarchy. You can be an engineer. You can be a doctor or a businessman, but that is the set of permissible professions. And I understood that point and I had to take an economics class. Class for my major. And initially, I was very apprehensive because the University of Chicago is the intellectual home of free market economics and of libertarianism. Most of my classmates who were in this economics class wanted to go into finance. I was, in fact, I ended up declaring an economics major as well. But in my cohort, as I recall, I was the only double major in economics and environmental studies. It seemed like two very different worlds. And I initially thought people in my economics class, I thought the professor was crazy, the kinds of things they were saying. Because in economics, when you talk about pollution, you say the optimal amount of pollution is not zero. We should allow there to be some pollution. When you talk about putting a dollar value on human life, all these things that sound to the passionate 17 year old that I was, it sounded infuriating. And I tried to argue against the professors. But the more I got into it, the more I realized I couldn't they had a point. And I ended up really drinking the Kool-Aid slash falling in love with economics. That was my trajectory from there.
0: Speaking of the university, it has some of the most leading economic minds there is. And so I could imagine that if there's a university to change your opinion, that might be one of them. How did you start talking to the professors there? I know when we spoke earlier, the list of both your mentors and professors there were incredible, but if you could share with the listeners a few of those moments.
1: Yeah, I got so lucky that John List, the amazing John List economist, he joined the University of Chicago, I think in my sophomore year. And I read about him and the fact that he had done environmental economics work. So I remember I just reached out to him and said, I'm interested in environmental economics. Can I talk to you? Can I be your RA? I think I was very lucky to get in so early <laughs> that I was able to start doing RA work for him. And he took me under his wing and I wrote my BA thesis under his guidance. And he really then became my role model. Because he had served in the White House. He had done top notch research that actually made a difference for environmental policy. He was that academic that also affected the real world and was very grounded. And so I said, This is the path I felt I had found it through him as a role model.
0: That's incredible. You would imagine that you would pursue graduate school work there as well, but that wasn't the case. Where did you end up after University of Chicago?
1: My mom and my stepdad were extremely supportive and also helped me explore these different opportunities and think through the potential value of an economics or additional degree.
0: What made you go to Yale?
1: I could have stayed at Chicago for graduate school, but I often say it's good to get a different perspective to broaden your horizons intellectually and to broaden your network as well. I took that advice and there were professors at Yale that I was excited to potentially work with. So off I went to New Haven.
0: You had failed a macroeconomics exam, and I'd love for you to share your experience then, because one would think that you didn't love economics in the beginning in terms of how it was taught. Then you failed an exam. What made you continue to muscle through and pursue it if that exam and also just the beginning of your economics education wasn't necessarily a honeymoon stage?
1: Oh, no, 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 no. In order to get into graduate school, you have to take take advanced math classes that are not required for an economics major. And I initially had a hard time with those. I did not do so well the first time around, but with appropriate encouragement, I kept at it. I was not as prepared as I should have been for graduate school. Most of my classmates at Yale had been math economics double majors and or already had a master's degree and I did not. My first year of graduate school was the fall of 2008. It was the beginning of the Great Recession and just the world economy was on fire. And so it was an incredibly interesting time to be sitting in a classroom and talking about macroeconomics. I found the class very interesting. Unfortunately, I understood maybe 10% of what the professor was saying. I had no idea what was going on. I just was underprepared. I was distracted by some things in my life. And then I failed this comprehensive exam. So in graduate school, in order to remain in the program, you have to pass this exam. You get two trials. And then if you fail, you get kicked out. And I know the the cohort ahead of us, they had kicked out four out of about 20 people for failing the macro exams. They meant business with this exam. And I buckled down and I spent about three months studying macro all day, every day. I remember there was this one equation that you have to derive. It's an equation that captures when governments set tax policy, they have to think about how different entities in the economy are going to respond. So if I have a higher tax on certain income earners, are they going to hide their income? Are they going to work less? If I tax corporations, are they going to move? Governments have to think about those things when predicting revenue from a tax. There's this equation you can derive that sort of summarizes this behavior that I just had no idea where it came from. I went to the math library, I spent all time to figure out this equation and I failed all day. And then next day I went back and I just kept trying and looking online for until one day I kind of got it. It wasn't like this in a movie, it would be an aha moment. It wasn't. it was it was delight. It's like the sun rises, and suddenly you see a little bit of light over the horizon. until eventually I actually got it. And that equation I ended up being core in my dissertation, which was about tax policy. So I just kept at it until I got it. <laughs> it was not a honeymoon. it was I didn't even know what the analogy would be, but eventually, We fell in love.
0: (laughs) I love that. I also love that our listeners will hear that story because many times people just assume, oh, it comes easy to them or it was so natural, or the idea that you're such a renowned economics and environmental researcher, but the idea is your first macro exam in Yale, you didn't do so well. It's helpful to hear and have some of the listeners muscle through when they think it's not for them. So after Yale, what next?
1: My first job was at the University of Maryland in the Department of Agricultural Resource Economics which was a great place with wonderful colleagues. I was there for two years. And then I got a job at Brown University, which was joint appointment between their Department of Economics and a wonderful institution called the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society. It's an interdisciplinary environmental faculty group. So I was at Brown for four years, one of which I spent visiting the University of Chicago again. That was very exciting to come home in a way at the Energy Policy Institute. And from there, I moved to the University of Santa Barbara, California, where I've been for the past two and a half years.
0: Incredible. Well, I know that you're not going to stay in Santa Barbara for long. Can you share with our listeners where you're going?
1: To ETH Zurich, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich.
0: Very exciting. And it's a really amazing role. Can you share what that will be?
1: Yes, I'm very excited. So ETH is on the lab system from the natural sciences, where professors have basically their own group and their own lab. And so I will be the head of a new group on climate and energy economics, where we'll be focused on doing research to better understand the macroeconomic risks posed by climate change, how to manage the transition to clean energy and to foster incentives for innovation and technological change.
0: So just a small role. You'd mentioned that first equation that you struggled with, but really is the equation I think that most companies and governments now have to think about in terms of whether there's a carbon tax, whether there's going to be a reduction of fossil fuels and usage, but all of those things. And so I would love to first have you share. I mean, you've studied economics and the climate impacts of that for a while. How have you seen that evolve historically in terms of the combination of the two, the integration of the two, really where the research is going, where the policy has led the research? But I'd love to just hear you Your 20,000 foot view of it first.
1: It's such an interesting history that has changed so tremendously at an accelerating pace even over the past two, three, ten years. It's rapidly shifting ground. The intellectual history of this intersection in economics and climate really starts arguably in the 1970s with William William Nordhaus' work. He was the 2018 recipient of the Nobel Prize for his pioneering work on integrating climate into macroeconomic analysis. The background to this is, if you think about economics and US economics at leading institutions like MIT at the time. Coming out of the 1950s and 1960s post-war boom, economists had really come to expect economic growth as a norm. The benchmark models at the time didn't even really think explicitly about natural resources or the environment. It's sort of in the background, an assumption that we can substitute for the environment with technology or machines. And at the same time in society, if you think about with the oil crisis and with the foundation of the EPA and the first Earth Day, you had growing concerns about economic growth and about the constraints that the environment might place on economic growth. So there's an anti-growth skepticism emerging in parallel. And William Nordhaus, he thought carefully about these concerns. And he looked at the data and sought out to bridge this gap and see what the data suggests. And he wrote several pioneering papers in the 1970s, including one that looked at natural resource scarcity, the fact that metals and energy goods, there's only so much oil that we have. There's only so much aluminum in the earth's crust that we can mine. But he looked at data on prices and abundance, crustal abundance, and concluded that Resource scarcity is unlikely to be a major constraint on economic growth, certainly any time that reasonable timescale. But he warned already in the 1970s that unchecked climate change, on the other hand, might end up being a significant constraint on economic growth if we don't deal with it. So this is incredibly present. It wasn't until 1990 that the United Nations formed the IPCC, released its first major report on global climate change. So this is very ahead of its time. And if you look at the history of economics of climate change, there were a few scholars who spoke to these issues beginning in the late 60s, 70s. But really, the publication record takes off starts to increase a little in the 90s and then early 2000s. And we went from a couple of climate change economics papers published a year to now it's several hundred every year that are published. That field has really exploded. And I've even noticed over the course of my career that when I finished my PhD and I went on the academic job market as an environmental macroeconomist, someone who's at that intersection, it was a little bit weird. And I was told this by even some people who interviewed me. They said, you're a little bit of an odd duck we don't know what to do with you. And now it's a major field that many employers are recruiting explicitly at this intersection. The Federal Reserve Board is opening a climate risk division. It's really become something that government entities and academia and businesses, everyone's attuned to it these days. So that's really been a a remarkable development over the past years.
0: That's fascinating. And in a prior conversation, I know we discussed it, but one of your goals is both personally and professionally is to bridge that gap between academia and Main Street in terms of whether it's education and policy, but would love to just hear your thoughts on that.
1: There's actually so many gaps that need to be bridged. I always find that fascinating how even within what you would think is a world where people get each other, for example, among climate change economists, right? This is a group of people who are economists who focus on climate change. There are big gaps between the folks who use more database methods and the folks who take a more macroeconomic modeling perspective. And we often don't talk exactly the same language. It takes a lot of effort even for us in such a narrow niche to really understand each other and be on the same page. And when you start going out further, Main Street versus what the research says, or policymakers, a lot of the climate change and more broadly environmental policy discussion in the U.S., some of it's become polarized to an almost absurd extent. I think it's getting... People are understanding is growing more now, but for a while you you still have people who deny the existence of climate change, right? According to a Yale program on climate change communication, only 57% of Americans believe that global warming is anthropogenic. So you have that extreme. And then on the other hand, you also have certain entities who act as though it's going to be costly. It's not going to cost us anything to switch to clean energy and to essentially ignore the cost side of taking action on climate change. So some pretend the benefit side doesn't exist. Some pretend the cost side doesn't exist, but both exist and both ought to be taken into account. I think this is something where economics can really shine because we're trained to think about benefits and costs. We're trained to think about trading off actions that have benefits for some and costs for others. And people disagree. Some people value environmental amenities, some people don't. How do we bridge that gap? This is where economics, I think, has its shining moment, but has a lot of value to add.
0: For sure. I know one of the papers that you had written, it's a working paper, but it, it's titled The Fiscal Costs of Climate Change in the US. And it's a really nice piece, a bit digestible. Can you share what, for those who haven't read it, can you share your thoughts or your proposal, is it universally solved by a carbon tax? What are your thoughts there in terms of an ideal solution? That
1: paper in particular focuses on a little bit more of a narrow slice of the bigger climate policy puzzle, but it focuses on the fiscal impacts of both climate change and climate policy. Because if we think about a changing climate, we might expect it to affect public budgets in a number of ways, right? So if we have changes in extreme weather events, changes in you know disease vector distributions, that's going to potentially affect healthcare costs. It can affect the costs of disaster assistance, of fire extinguishing efforts, et cetera. But also there are certain adaptation efforts against climate change that will almost inevitably have to be publicly paid for, right, for elevating roads, protective coastal infrastructure. These are things that will have to come out of taxpayers' dollars very likely if we want them. And climate policy, by the same token, could, depending on how it is structured, raise revenues to support some of these efforts. But of course, in other parts of the country might have a decrease in coal mining activity that might in certain parts of the country also shrink tax bases and decrease tax revenues locally. So it's the balancing act across these different effects And that paper sought to incorporate these and quantify them explicitly to think about some of these trade-offs. The central message of the paper is that even if you have an America first perspective, even if you do not care about impacts of climate change on the rest of the world, it is an American national self-interest to take some mitigating action through climate change through a carbon price instrument, that that would bring economic benefits to America, again, taking the rest of the world into even ignoring potential benefits for the rest of the world. And these benefits to be had from appropriately structured climate policy are quite substantial, in part driven by the interactions with broader fiscal and tax policy.
0: You'd mentioned how there's so much information out there, and yet it's a polarizing topic, and it's getting political as well. And so some people hear the headlines that there's Global warming and other people don't believe it and are naysayers with it. I find it similar to investing, where there's all that data out there, and yet there's really smart people in the room who disagree. And it always is so interesting to me that that's why I like it. It's like this puzzle that almost no one can solve all the time, all day, every day. Similarly with climate, I've read a lot of things. I've read the latest Bill Gates book, and I've balanced it with Steve Koonin and others. And it's interesting how some people say it's a climate emergency and use that word. Very strongly, and others say it's not an emergency. This is a false alarm, and so I'm curious how you think about that in terms of how we in the U.S. think about it, because it's it is very different and diverging. And then there's a separate component of how the world thinks about it by different regions. But we'd love to just get your thoughts of how confusing the data is and how someone can really just get a balanced perspective to learn more.
1: What a great question! The first thing you ask is essentially. How do we account for this disagreement that exists, even among experts, right? If they already don't agree, then what hope does the rest of society have? But I think I can only speak to a little bit to disagreement among economists. There's also documented disagreement. If you just ask people how big they think the economic impacts are going to be of climate change, the distribution of answers you get from natural scientists versus economists also look different, right? And so focusing now on where I have a bit of experience within economics, I think it's a mix of the fact that, first of all, there's some value judgments involved, inevitably, right? So if we think, for example, about the fact that a lot of climate damages will occur over a long time horizon, So we have to decide if we lose a million dollars of GDP in 2050, how much should we be willing to pay today to avoid losing a million dollars in 2050? You can make a reasonable case for different approaches to valuing these very long term future effects, for example, and there's just not necessarily a single right answer to that. I have a colleague here, Anthony Milner, who's done some really interesting work on explicitly modeling different experts as agreeing and has modeled, well, what if we're a little humble and acknowledge the fact that we might change our opinion about some of these thorny issues and finds that you can narrow the range of estimates a little bit, but not completely. So there are some fundamental issues that I think reasonable people can, can disagree over. And then I think sometimes it's also a matter of there's actually three components. So the first is reasonable people can disagree about some value judgments. The second component is that we have different analogies to estimate these effects, which sometimes give different answers. And I think that can be for very good reasons. So when I teach my undergrads, for example, about the debate on minimum wage impacts on employment, right? Is increasing the minimum wage going to increase unemployment? If you look at different estimates that have been done in the literature of past minimum wage increases, they give a range of different answers. but, that's not entirely unexpected because some of these studies look at the effect of a 50 cent minimum wage increase on fast food workers in Texas in 1990. And others look at a one dollar increase during the recession on all teenage employment. So the fact that our methodologies, if we look at really somewhat different questions, we get somewhat different answers to a scholar, that makes sense. Of course, for the general public, that still sounds confusing, but we can make some sense of it in terms of the academic disagreement. And then the third part of it is, I think, sometimes just a matter of interpretation. So for example, if you take some standard estimates that, for example, US GDP costs of climate change by end of century will be between one and 4% of GDP, is that big or small, right? So some people, to them, that sounds small and say, yeah, it's just a couple of percent of GDP. If you ask me, that's enormous, right? The real GDP loss during 2020 from the pandemic was less than 4%. It was 35 3.6%. That's a huge GDP loss, but to some people it might sound small. So I think it's a matter of interpretation, reasonable differences. It's like the metaphor of the blind people touching the elephant. Someone has the trunk and someone has the tail, but we all know that our methodologies are limited. So I think there's different components to it, but at the end of any climate change economist you ask pretty much is going to agree. It's important. It's in our self-interest to take some action. There's as close to universal agreement, I think, as you can get among economists that a carbon price is a good way to go as part of the answer. You have record numbers of economists endorsing a price on carbon for the United States. So there is a lot of agreement on the big ticket items. Of course, there's also big items where there's still some disagreement, but the first, yes, it's a problem. It's a problem for the U.S. economy. And a price on carbon is one of, and a clean energy research subsidy are two tools that we need to have to combat this issue.
0: I love that. There's one chapter you wrote in a book. It was the no brainers and low hanging fruit in national climate policy. I thought your chapter on the climate policy opportunities in the U.S. was Great. It was easy for me (laughs) to read and laid out three very simple suggestions of, one, you had mentioned national carbon pricing, but then also increases in clean tech innovation funding, which I thought was fantastic. And then the third was climate risk disclosures, which sounds so simple, and yet we're not fully there yet at a corporate level. I think it was really important in the way that you laid it out of how the stakes are so high in the U.S. And we are the second largest emitter, which is pretty extraordinary. I highly recommend that for our readers. What do you think is preventing Something as simple as a carbon tax where we are the second largest emitter and there's no disagreement about how this is very important for the world and certainly for the U.S. Why do you think without maybe getting into politics, but is there any other strong reason you think that there is such a difficulty in applying something as simple as mandates on disclosures or a carbon tax just to start?
1: I think the answer is different for the carbon tax than for the mandates. And with the clean tech R&D, that's actually an area where there has been progress, right? The bipartisan infrastructure bill has included some provisions for certain clean tech R&D funding expansion. So I think the it is inevitably a question of politics at this point. But I think the, the political economy outlook on, on some of these tools is, is very different. And, you know, for a carbon tax, where to start? <laughs> there are several layers. First of all, you have to design a carbon tax in a way that carefully thinks about the winners and losers and takes care that people are made whole, that we use the very thoughtful way. And that is theoretically very possible, right? So it does a large fraction of potential carbon tax revenue to fully ensure lower income households are not disproportionately affected and to even offset profit losses in the most vulnerable industries right one one could design a carbon price instrument that way i think as with any policy that generates some revenues there's usually a complicated bargaining process which is not necessarily going to lead to the most efficient proposal being on the table that's just a general point i think in the united states there's naturally an aversion to taxes and to things that sound like tax increases. Of course, that ignores the reality that right now we're all subsidizing fossil fuel consumption and we're all being taxed through climate damages. It's just not as salient or explicit or visible as a tax that's explicitly labeled as a tax. I think the United States, the way the government system is set up, certain senators and and congressmen and women whose job it is to protect their constituencies, and if their constituencies stand to lose from certain policies, They will, of course, then take appropriate action in in the bills that they do or do not. And again, there's a question then of how to design a policy to overcome some of these concerns. I think also if you look at, there's opposition to carbon pricing also in countries that have carbon pricing, right? So we saw with the Yellow Vest movement in France, that was about more than carbon pricing, but, but petrol taxes played a role in it, right? And there was also a response movement in Sweden with a much smaller, but still a protest movement against petrol taxes. If you look at surveys that have been done of some of these protesters, concerns about Carbon pricing will range from, again, perceptions of an unfair burden on certain populations, which can be redressed with policy design, but that's a concern that can exist. Some on the left even have concerns about market-based mechanisms in general. So there's a range of reasons why people aren't immediately on board with carbon pricing. I think those can all be overcome, but it takes very clear communication. It takes education on what actually the effects of carbon taxes are and aren't. There's a lot of misperceptions about how big the costs or the economic effects are. So my hope is that some of these challenges can be overcome.
0: I'm excited for your move to Switzerland and also your work at ETH, because I think it's ironic that you're going to Switzerland and there it's very neutral and bipartisan in many ways. And then also you're bridging this gap between economists and also the environmental layer. And so it's true neutrality (laughs) in, in many different areas. What are you looking forward to in terms of your research at ETH?
1: Oh, I'm very excited. First of all, I look forward to having a team. I've started interviewing people and there's just so many great applicants that I really would be so excited to work with. I think one of the opportunities that ETH and being in Switzerland is going to provide is a chance to be more involved with climate finance. So I was asked to teach a course on climate finance. This is an emerging area of research on which I have done and and doing a little bit more work and, and look forward to getting into because I think there's so much appetite I don't need to tell you, but there's so much appetite from investors to put their money in sustainable investments. But what is that? How do we measure it? And how do we ensure that we're actually providing the right incentives? It's extremely challenging. We don't have the right answers yet. And so I'm excited for that as an area of research to get into. I'm also very excited to plug into great climate science and engineering teams that exist at ETH You know, it's a technical university. I have learned from my future colleagues, the latest in climate science that can also better understand the economics.
0: Love that. Well, I'm looking forward to tracking all your research. And for the listeners, I'll link your website to the show notes, but it's lintbarrage.com. And it has a lot of the working papers and the references. But for people who just want to get cracking in terms of starting that basic foundational information or education for them in terms of the blend between climate finance or climate and environmental impacts. Where do you recommend people start or begin their journey for education there? What resources do you recommend?
1: I would start with the writings of William Nordhaus, who again is the 2018 Nobel Laureate for pioneering work on integrating climate into macroeconomic analysis. And he's written a series of books. The latest is The Spirit of Green. For that, he wrote The Climate Casino. And one of my longtime favorites is A Question of Balance. And that's from 2008. His writing is so sharp and insightful. He has this almost X-ray vision of getting immediately to the core of the issue. So I would I would recommend his writing for a balanced, accessible, just brilliant place to start one's explorations.
0: Perfect. Thank you. I mean I could ask you hours and hours or more questions about this because I'm such a novice at it, but I will make sure to keep up to date on your website. And if you don't mind, I could pivot in the interview to where I ask more questions about less of your professional work and journey, but more to you, starting with who or what inspires you?
1: So many things. (laughs) Honestly, I'm inspired by almost everyone in my life. I mean, my family inspires me a great deal. My mother, who worked her way out to accomplish so much, and my stepdad, who's been tirelessly working for change in the world and in healthcare for decades, And my husband, who (laughs) is such a brilliant mind and sponge and approaches the world with so much positivity, you know, my in-laws, my brother, a lot of people in my family inspire me, my friends, my colleagues, people whose work I read, random people you meet, Annie, our mail carrier who always has such a great energy and attitude. I honestly find inspiration all around me. I'm inspired by people who work hard, make things happen, have a good attitude.
0: Same with me. It's funny. There's not one single thing or person or item, but very much like you, my kids inspire me when I see them wake up and they're just so happy and they have nothing stressing them out. And they just said like, great, where's breakfast? It's so simple. And they're so present in that moment. I seek a lot of inspiration as well from pretty much everything. Did you have a mentor or role model either growing up or through your professional journey?
1: I was extremely fortunate to have a series of incredible mentors who each got me to the next stage, beginning with my middle school German teacher, Tibor Tavirac. He passed last year, but he was this, you know, some people, they just light up a room and they just light a fire in you. Suddenly, your view of the world explodes. He, he was like that. And I had then another mentor from back home, and then John List, and at Yale, my incredible mentors. Bill Nordhaus, my dissertation advisor, Oleg, Justine Hastings, Tony Smith. I've been very fortunate to have a series of incredible mentors.
0: That's fantastic. You've done a lot, accomplished a lot. We haven't even gotten into your personal path of also being a mom too, but what are you most proud of in your journey so far?
1: I don't know that pride is an emotion I want to cultivate, if that makes sense. My first instinct is to say I'm proud of my daughter, but I don't get credit for the amazing little person that she is. I'm the lucky one to have her. In fact, her name Nima means a divine gift. That's how I think about her. I think if we're talking about what is it in my professional life that makes me feel, that brings me the most joy and makes me think, oh, this is amazing. The fact that I've been able to I think, earn some people's trust or that some people have, I've developed enough of a perspective that it's useful to some people. So I do a lot of refereeing and peer review, right, which is where people submit their papers, and then some anonymous other scholars read it and make a recommendation about should it be published or not? How should it be changed? I get invited to a lot of those peer reviews. And I think that's really an awesome responsibility to participate in the scientific process. I'm also going to be an editor at a journal starting next year, which is also, again, a wonderful opportunity. It's an honor, I think. I'm really excited about that. And then also, I've had the opportunity to really make my teenage dream come true and talk to policymakers about environmental policy. This is what I wanted to do, and now I get to do it. So that's really amazing. I've been very fortunate.
0: Well, I'm glad that you didn't go down the path of creating alarmist videos, and I'm super glad that you went down (laughs) glad that you went down this path of academic education, but you're also way too humbled because I feel that when I read the reviews online and all your papers, you have peers and also professional colleagues who really just sing your praises. And so it's that sense of humility that I think is why you get invited to all these peer reviews and whatnot. So I'll be your hype girl online and make sure that you might not be so openly proud, but I'll be vocal for you. What do you think about luck? This is a question that I've added more recently because a listener had mentioned just they would like to hear the perspective if I were to ask that. So how much luck do you think has impacted your life? Good luck, bad luck, and this could apply both personally or professionally, but I would just love to hear your thoughts on luck and how it affected your life.
1: If you think about human history, and you line up the experience that the billions of billions of who have lived have had, the unimaginable privilege of being born, first of all, in the 20th century, right, at a time where there are rights for women in some places where there's modern medicine, right? There's there's freedoms for women, again, in certain places, not everywhere. And then to have lived in countries that have been at peace, right? Where there's, in certain parts, rule of law where you can feel safe. The incredible fortune of being born at a time where I have food in my fridge, I have clean water, you know, just all these things that are easy to take for granted are So fundamental, if we didn't have them, experience would be rough, right? For centuries, millennia, human life was nasty, brutish, and short. And now for some of us, it isn't. And that is the defining luck, I think, of late birth in the place and circumstances into which I was born. Add to this. The fact that I was born into a loving family. We know from studies and just introspection that having a family that cares about you is so fundamental for, again, your lot in life. And so I couldn't have been luckier.
0: I love that answer. It's also a reminder for me. It's like the daily dose of positivity that you provide, but also gratitude that you're very simply saying what many think is the obvious, but we do take it for granted. So thank you for that. What does success mean for you?
1: In my work, I think. I feel successful when I've had an idea that I think brings a new insight, when I feel that I've executed it to the best of my ability and carefully so. I've taken my time to dog my eyes and cross my eyes, and I really feel confident that this finding that I've made is robust and that finding is of interest to others, be it policymakers, be it fellow researchers, when I've, collaborators, figured something out that's useful to have figured out and that's new, I feel successful. That's one part. The other part is when I've been able to communicate something to someone or got been able to see someone, help someone see a perspective that they hadn't had before. I loved at Brown. I got to teach environmental studies undergraduates and I was uh, their only economics class. And a lot of them were like what I was like when I was a young environmental studies major. And they generally trusted me to be "quote unquote" one of them, but they would often tell me that I changed their minds about economics and some of the issues because they just they were able to see that other perspective. And I think if we can build empathy in others for those who disagree with us, what could be more important in this 21st century that we live in, right? To be able to empathize with another's perspective, even if you disagree with them. If I can contribute to that in anybody, the person on the plane back when we used to fly planes, I might be chatting with, I feel successful in that way. And now, especially as I transition to more of a mentor role, if I've helped a young person expand their view of their potential and take a next step in in their career. I had an undergraduate advisee here at UCSB a couple of years ago, who I worked with her on her BA thesis, and she thought she was going to graduate and get a job in marketing, but she had this interest in research. And she never thought of herself as the type of person who could do quantitative economics research. But just with questioning that assumption she had about herself. She opened her mind to it. She wrote a fantastic thesis. She's now a full-time researcher at Stanford, a research assistant, and I expect great things from her. So that to me brings me immense joy when I've helped a young person, like my mentors helped me think of themselves in being more than what they had assumed themselves to be. So I think that to me is success.
0: Oh, I love that answer. We talked about a little bit of Failure from a macro exam way back when. But I'd love to hear your perspective of either growth or failure in the sense of one of the biggest growth moments or most impactful failure moments that you can share.
1: I think I would go back to the exam that I failed because not only was it so potentially consequential, right? It would have derailed my entire career plan had I failed the second time. But it ended up teaching me the most valuable lesson, I think, of my entire education, which is that even if something seems impossibly confusing and complicated at first, and you think I could never understand this, it instilled in me a faith that if I keep at it long enough, I can figure this out. Obviously, that's not going to be true for everything in my life. I'm never going to be a basketball player or ballerina. I'm never going to understand physics. So, you know, I do still know, I have many, many limitations, but I think within reason, at least locally, If I keep at it long enough, I can figure it out. And I think this faith is the biggest gift, not just for my profession, because I take on research projects and literatures that I don't know much about. But if I spend the time to get into it, I can can learn something and get into it. But also in the existence that is being human in the 21st century, where everything is complicated, right? Look at your credit card bill. Just (laughs) take your time. You can figure out what all these things mean. I think that's been the best thing I've learned in my education.
0: Love that. It's one of my favorite failures to share. Thank you for that. What's next for Lint Baraj?
1: I have another semester here at UC Santa Barbara, which I love the department. It's a wonderful place. I look forward to being here a few more months and then the move on to ETH Zurich. I'm also excited to be joining the National Climate Assessment for the U.S., National Climate Assessment, as an author, where we also... I'm able to join a group of researchers and scientists who who seek to bring climate science to stakeholders in the United States and communicate what's going on in an accessible fashion. I'm excited for the move for building my team at ETH and hopefully contributing to the conversation as it moves ahead.
0: So excited. Well, I'm looking forward to continuing to track you professionally and all your research. Thank you so much for being on the show. I learned a lot in the past hour and to read more about it. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for doing this podcast, it's amazing.